In the TIPBS podcast, you get great ideas and practical advice for educators. You can get more invaluable insights and free resources by subscribing to the TIPBS monthly newsletter. Visit www.tipbs.com and register your email address. Hello and welcome to Trauma-Informed Support. I'm your host, Dr Kay Eyre. So much has been said and written about being trauma-informed, but what does this look like in practice? In the Trauma-Informed Positive Behaviour Support Program, we translate the science of childhood trauma into practical strategies that work within the realities of a school environment. Leading the way in such practice is the Lincoln High School in Washington. The school, its students and staff, were the subject of the documentary Paper Tigers. Set within and around the campus of Lincoln Alternative High School in the rural community of Walla Walla in Washington, the documentary Paper Tigers attempts to answer the following questions. What does it mean to be a trauma-informed school? And how do you educate teens whose childhood experience has left them with a brain and body ill-suited to learning? Today we speak with Eric Gordon, a science teacher from the school, who explains how the school has adopted a trauma-informed approach to curriculum development and disciplinary practices. Eric is interviewed by my colleague, Dr. Gavin Krishnamurthy. I hope you find this informative and inspiring. Um, hi, Eric. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for having me. That's great. So we might just start maybe if perhaps you just want to introduce yourself to our listeners and perhaps tell us a little bit about the school itself. Would that be okay? Sure, that sounds good. Uh, yeah, my name's Eric. I teach science here at uh, Lincoln High School. Uh, our school functions as the alternative school to the traditional high school in our community. Uh, the traditional high school here runs about 1,400, students. Uh, our school runs just under 200 students, although through the period of the school year, I think we have uh, right around 300 students uh, on campus, although the population never goes over 200. So we have a lot of turnover throughout the year. Um, the community that we're in is, is rural America. It's wheat fields, uh, wheat farmers. Uh, there's some wine industry here, small bit of tourism. Uh, community is about 34, 35,000 people. Um, um, mostly conservative in politics, uh, with a large agricultural component of it, which lends to uh, about 30-40% of our, our student population uh, is Latino. Um, uh, the rest white, our uh, free and reduced lunches, which is how we kind of rate uh, poverty level here in schools, mm. runs right about 85-90% of the student body. Um, so, so we are poor. Um, and, uh, you know, if you, if you come to our community, it wouldn't look like inner city, right? It looks like uh, small town America. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's sometimes not as obvious, you know, that our population would be as impoverished as they are. 
Mm, that's great. Thank you for that. Um, so I want to ask you about paper tigers. Um, sure. Just just wanting to get some context around that. Um, there's a lot of interest in it here, and it's really inspiring watching you guys um, through the documentary. Can you tell us about um, how it came about and how the teachers and students felt about it being made? Sure, you bet. Um, and I think it was 2012, Jane Stevens, um, she runs No Aces Do I Have a website, which is a phenomenal resource uh, for all things Aces. Um, did an article, and I'm not really sure how she found out about what we were doing. I mean, we were fairly new into the arc of, of the way we view and do things around here. Uh, but she found out about it and came and wrote, wrote an article that started to gain some national, national attention. Um, that happened about the same time that Karen Pitzker and, and Jamie Redford were looking to do a documentary on ACEs uh, as a whole. And, and as part of that documentary, they were looking at doing I think five or six different locations around the United States that were focusing on ACEs. Um, when they came to our school, when Jamie came and pitched it to the staff, you know, he talked to Jim Sporlier, who was principal at the time. Um, you know, there was a lot of hesitation. There was a lot of resistance, I guess you'd say. Um, you know, a Redford name looks like Hollywood, uh, a documentary that we were afraid was going to be, uh, you know, reality TV looking to, to just get viewers and, uh, make a mockery of something that we held very personal. Uh, but within a really short time of talking to Jimmy Redford, he's, he just radiates off that guy that he that he has a passion for change. And it's, it's, uh, you, can't, you can't ignore it. And, uh, and personally for me, a big piece was everything about the video was already paid for. The movie was done. The movie was paid for. He had no reason to try to, um, to sell it. And so given the fact that it was already paid for, given the genuineness, um, we decided that um, we would you know, let, them, let them into our, our family and our lives here and take a little peek. Uh, originally, it was going to be just one section of that bigger movie, um, looking at our school as a whole. Uh, within a very short time period of being here, uh, as, as uh, teachers would know that love their kids, that they fell in love with the kids. And, uh, and in getting to know the kids, they decided to do two parts, where they would still do the one movie, which was more facts and information and kind of the science behind it, associated with it, and they would use uh, the students at our school uh, as the human interest piece to show what does this look like when it's being implemented uh, in the world. And, uh, you know, in large part, that was, um, large part of that movie is just the kids themselves with mm. uh, their handicaps shooting their own diary down with their lives. Mm. So then, so then as they started being around here, uh, more and more, they, the, the, it was a husband and wife team that was the producer in the video. For most of the time, and they fell in love with the kids as well. Uh, there's something that maybe if I were critical of the movie in a way, it feels too good. Um, mm. the, this job is not as sexy as that movie makes it. You know, like, uh, I'm not as good a teacher as, as the movie makes it look to be, um, and the impact we have on the kids is not as slick and smooth as it looks like. I think part of the reason that it feels that way um, is that the, the, the team video here fell in love with the kids so much. I think they became a little biased in what they felt. You know, they had a tendency to slight themselves towards the um, the parts that felt good. You know, and, um, uh, you know, the kids were resistant at first. Uh, as, I mean, it's, it's amazing the amount that they let themselves in um, mm. to their lives. But uh, I think the motivation that I heard from all of them multiple times was if this, if the, they were willing to be vulnerable, if this was possibly going to change someone's life and change the way they impacted. 
Yeah, that's great. We, we had a chance to speak with James, actually. Um, he spoke with us privately. And um, I remember one of the, I mean, and he radiates a lot of that, but I remember one of the things he said was he really didn't just want to deliver the bad news. He wanted to actually right. give people a way forward. And that's what he saw in the high school, um, yeah. in the kids and in the teachers. Yeah, I that for sure. Yeah, that's great. Um, uh, so there's a lot of talk about trauma and, and, and what it does to the kids. Um, what is, how do you um, sort of explain trauma to perhaps, perhaps a new teacher who's come to school and is trying to get their head around it? Is there a metaphor or an example you kind of give to explain to them what it is and how it impacts the kids? Man, um, you know, that's, that's a tough question. I think yeah. I, I teach science, so I tend to approach it just from the scientific <laughs> Oh, yeah. Uh, um, you know, uh, I, there's some pieces I want to talk about here, maybe in a little bit, which has to do with value systems um, mm -hmm. and why we interact with kids the way we do and how that change came upon our staff as a whole. Yeah. Um, and, and so I think that, I, that that can't be ignored in, in what you do with a new staff. And that is, there has to be an alignment of the value system that happens uh, here at school, the way everyone in our school interacts with students. And so, um, the brain science is a piece of that, right? Like understanding, mm. um, understanding the way the brain develops, understanding the, the, the limbic system and the, uh, the reptilian part of our brain versus the mammalian part of our brain versus the human part of our brain that allows us to do complex thought. And, you know, the, the limbic system shuts down and prevents uh, that, that rational thought from happening. And I think that for a lot of people who haven't been exposed, I mean, for everyone, if you haven't been exposed to that, that's all um, very new. And it doesn't feel natural to know that. Doesn't feel natural that um, I think the natural way, and I'm not sure if that's because uh, of what we view in human behavior or what we're told is the cause of human behavior as we grow up. Um, but it, is, it seems to not be natural to view a kid's behavior and just assume that there's something else causing that. It seems like the natural human reaction is to view there's something I'm doing that's the cause of the behavior that I'm seeing. Like uh, it seems to be viewed very much in the now and in the moment as the cause of that behavior. Uh, versus the idea that there may be something that you aren't aware of, something that may have happened previously, uh, something the brain is remembering from a long time ago that's coming out of that behavior. That's not a natural way of just automatically assuming that. So, so explaining the science behind what happens to a brain uh, at a physiological level seems to be a key part in understanding uh, the behavior. Yeah, Erica, I was just curious, you know, we, we often see that even with our program, the teachers get their head around the science of it all. But then there's usually, you know, like one student or one particular incident that really pushes them to kind of use this stuff and really see a different way of looking at it. Do, do you have a story like that? Do you have a student that or, or a kind of particular incident that happened where that really pushed you and kind of made clear some of this stuff within a school sure. context, yeah. Honestly, I can't even pull it, it's so, I mean, it's every kid. I mean, I don't even know how to pull one out, but I mean, I, maybe in, in general, I would say this. Um, my kids are amazing, they're, they're absolutely awesome. Um, and they love me intensely as much as I love them. And once that relationship is established, there is no way that someone that loves somebody else treats them the way these students treat me, right? Like, at the point that I that I know this kid digs me so much, and I dig them so much, I don't need brain science anymore at this point to know that there's something wrong. 
this is not the way people that enjoy each other's company treat each other or respect each other. And, and at that point, the being able to let go of my own personal piece of that interaction, the emotional response that I think, this kid's doing this just to piss me off. This kid's doing this just to spite me or to wreck what I've got planned for my lesson today. Um, you know, two people that enjoy each other's company that much don't interact in that way. There's clearly something going on bigger than this moment, bigger than us, that's causing this interaction to be so unsavory. And, and once, once I understood that piece, then all of a sudden, my concern wasn't with how am I going to gain control of my classroom management right now. Like my concern also becomes what's going on with this kid that has them hurting so much that someone they care about so deeply, they're going to interact with them in this way. You know, like this is so unnatural. It's like, um, and, and, and oftentimes that's where I started with. You know, mm. the interaction with those kids in that moment, which is just like, what's going on? Like, this sucks. It sounds like you feel horrible inside right now. You know, like, forget me. Forget what's going on right now with our interaction. I apologize. Whatever it was that I did, I may not even know, that set you off. I didn't mean to go there. Um, let's take care of you. Like, let's get you feeling good again. This sucks, it sucks to be this way. Um, and, and that happens. I mean, I can't pick out, I mean, yeah, there's individual stories, but it's all of them. And that's, that's my kids. You know, that's my my student population on every given day. You know, so wow. you know, one of those stories is maybe it's too overwhelming. Like I try to think of one of them, I can think of 75. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, that sounds great. I mean, and I think that leads into my next question, which was about, you know, how, uh, what changes have actually happened at the school over time that's actually helped with you guys being trauma informed. And I was curious about, you know, what you were saying around the, you know, the whole disciplines piece as well, you know, this, this need to not punish them even in the face of, you know, lots of opposition and whatnot. So what, what changes have happened, do you think, Eric, that have been really positive? Well, in the first part, there's a, there's a difference. You know, I'm not sure how your student or your school model is there in Australia, but um, in here, in, many, in most communities, you've got a traditional high school and you've got an alternative high school. And, uh, and really what most communities uh, in the U.S., that operates as those kiddos that are blowing up and preventing your regular high school from being able to function how you want it to, we're going to skim those kids off and stick them in their own portable buildings, oftentimes out behind the school, like, you know, we, we, we set up a physical location that just shows them how worthless they are, even mm -hmm. beyond the like, fact that we're going to make them go to this place. Um, and then... Um, that happens uh, here as well, I should just say. Okay, okay. So, so here's what I think probably happens there as well. For the most part, teachers that select themselves to go out into that portable and hang out with those group of kids mm. are already self-selected as a group of teachers that are going to be doing a lot of things right or they never would have volunteered to step into those schools. Um, and I'm not sure if this happens in your communities as well, but in the U.S., our teachers' union is so strong, you can't fire a teacher. So many school districts, the way they handle that is the way our unions work. You can move a teacher anywhere laterally within a district you want to. So what do you do with those teachers that you don't want anymore? You fire them the hardest kids, hoping that the kids are going to be so bad to them that they'll just self-select themselves out. Um, so that goes on as well. So we'll work that a little bit into our story here as well, because that was certainly a part of our transitional process when we started to make changes around here. So, um, uh, so some things that we made, well, we, let's, so let's start there. You know, so some of the changes that we made was an expectation from the administration that we would first and foremost love students. That was our goal and our mission here. And uh, you know, there was a lot of uh, complaints to the union from some of those teachers that couldn't make that switch. 
Uh, they, they clearly felt not supported anymore because it used to be that they could just send a kid to the office with the idea that in the classroom they could say, you better change your behavior or you better, you're going to go to the office and fear would keep that kid uh, from making that switch. And when kids start standing up and saying, you're an asshole, send me to the office so I can talk to the principal, yeah. and all of a sudden that teacher lost that hammer and felt unsupported. And those teachers, uh, for the, almost, almost to, a, to a teacher, self-selected out of the system. They weren't able to go into the break room at lunch and bitch about kids because none of the other teachers wanted to hear it. And, uh, and at staff meetings, they weren't able to find that support complaining about kids because the teachers wanted to find ways and solutions for the kids and love the kids. So, so those teachers kind of moved themselves out. Um, so that being said, there, was, there, was, there wasn't as much training uh, on how to build relationships with kids as you might need in some other schools because those were the teachers that were choosing to be in the school already. So there was more about giving a vocabulary and a reason, like here, here's why what you've been doing for 20 years has been working, um, and then a more intent as they went upon their daily work than maybe before when they were just doing it by instinct, which was I just love bad kids. These are my peeps, and like you know, like and that was that got them to a certain place, but now they have more intent. So some things that we did add in uh, to add some intentionality. Uh, one of the biggest pieces we have in our school is um, the way we run our ISS room. And it's, it's half in-school suspension and it's half. Uh, de-escalation. Can and, I just uh, ask ask about that, Eric? What, was it ISS? Yeah. Did you say what does that stand for? Yeah, in school suspension. So, so in other words, that's one of the shifts from out of school suspension, which is the typical thing. A kid shows up stoned, so you send him home for five days to sit on the couch and smoke more weed, right? Um, so instead of that, we say no, we want you here, and instead it's only going to be one day. And you're going to spend it upstairs, where we have an adult that we selected because of their ability to build relationships. To, to have hard conversations with kids, to uh, to help that kid almost almost in a therapeutic way, although they're not a therapy they're not therapy trained, but that's almost the role they take in that room. So that kid, yes, is going there as a consequence, it's not a punishment, but a consequence for their behavior. Um, I I can use that room in my class period if I've got a kid who is preventing my classroom from learning. I can have them just go to that room for the remainder of the period, and then they're back in school. So it's like that little slap on the wrist. You know, I have a I have a five year old and a seven year old. And when they misbehave, I don't give them a, a five-day out-of-home suspension because they did something wrong, right? I use my timeout chair and quick little two-minute increments just to keep reminding them, no, I'm dad, I have control, you're safe, I have boundaries, here they are, here's a little slap on the wrist, and slowly we start to change that behavior. So we can use that ISS room in a very similar manner for, for quick little reprimands or for a longer one day. They're here, if I have a lab they can't miss, I can call up and we can send a student down do the lab in my science classroom, and then I launch them back up for the rest of the day. Um, the other half of that room is has got couches. Um, you know, like it's it's soothing. The lights are peaceful. The whole room is meant to de-escalate, right? Therapeutically mm. de-escalate kids, and uh, and then kids can self-select out of the classroom at any time they need to to go up to that room and pull themselves together. You know, we realize that the the, the life brings a kid to our classroom in a place oftentimes where there's no way they're going to learn anything anyway. Um, you know, the parents are looking at being arrested that afternoon for possession and, and they're going to go away for a while. That kid's not going to sit in my classroom and learn about science, right? Like, how ridiculous am I to think that I have my science curriculum is the most important thing in this kid's life right now? So, so kids that are just unable to be in headspace to learn can go up there and de-escalate, have those conversations, and hopefully they can get to a spot where they can come back in the, in the school system for the day and learn. So that, that room is something that was new that we put in that has been incredibly important. Um, we have a health center that was uh, put in on campus here, I think probably six years ago now, um, that is just for our students and staff of mental health, uh, uh, nurses, there's a doctor that rotates through there, 
um, clinicians, and it's like a full mini hospital that just sees the 200 students that we have here on campus. Uh, kids can sign out at any point to go over there, whether it's for mental health reasons, uh, or just physical reasons, or for their weekly scheduled appointments with our counselors that can uh, move mm -hmm. there. Um, Eric, can I? Can yeah, I just ask yeah. you about the health clinic? Um, sure. So was that something that was funded by the school or was that something that Not came from all. the district? Yeah. As crazy as it sounds, there's a state law in our state of Washington state that actually prevents school districts from putting any money into a, into a health, uh, health on-campus health center. So it's actually state law. They can't put money into this health center. It is ridiculous. Right. So it is a non-profit. It has to operate as a non-profit. Like, uh, the, the head of the department is a full-time position just getting money from the community to make to where that health center can continue to run. So that is a continuous struggle we face every single day is maintaining funding for that position. That's true. Uh, the district wants it. You know, they're putting health centers now slowly expanding into the rest of the district, but the whole system is self-supporting. Self yeah, right. Yeah. And how do you feel like that adds value? You know, you were telling telling me about how the kids go away there for appointments and things like that. How, how else do you feel like it's added benefits to the kind of school community? Well, um, you know, as a, as a school, our belief is our goal is to give kids as many options in life as they possibly can. And, um, you know, depending on where a child is in their developmental process, um, you know, one child, in order to have as many options as possible, they need AP biology, they need AP classes, they need to be able to test high into the highest caliber colleges in our country because that's what opens their options up. That's what they're ready for. Our students, the number one thing preventing them from the choices that they can have in life has nothing to do with academics. Yet they're coming to school to be given academics, right? That's what the state says our primary job is. So, um, you know, we're, we obviously don't believe that's true. Um, but yet, we are trained as educators. We're not trained as mental health professionals. So um, the health center and the mental health professionals there, at this point, the way our school is set up, provides the only true clinicians that we have to help the kids gain those, those skills. Mm -hmm. um, which then, I guess, leads to the next thing that I would add, the last thing that I would say, uh, the, the change around here, which is we've added in a focus of concern. So every Wednesday is early release. Uh, most of the buildings in the district use that for collaborative learning and education stuff. Uh, you know, we use it for time to go through every kid in school that we're, we're concerned about. So all the teachers get together, we throw a kid's name out, all the teachers are there to have that student, they give uh, concerns that they have in their classrooms, they can give um, things that they've worked, interventions that have worked for them in the classroom that, that seem to be helping the student. Uh, at the same time, we have the health center has their clinicians here and uh, they can give their um, more clinical view of what might be uh, helpful for the kid. Um, and then we frequently have community providers uh, that are supporting students, not even within the school district, that will show up at that meeting uh, and give their piece of the puzzle that they may be able to contribute uh, to the student. So that has been a really important part of our process. Yeah, I was thinking about the health clinic and I know just before, um, just as we started the interview, you had a young person come in asking for toiletries and things and I was thinking yeah. about, um, you know, how you've got to meet their basic needs around just health and, you know, <laughs> staying clean and, you know, not being hungry and often yes. that's a big part of them being successful, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. And we have, um, we, get, we have every Friday before the weekend, we have backpacks full of food that students that need it can grab on the way out of the doors so what they've got to do for the weekend. Um, uh, regularly, community uh, support comes in here just with, with just items and things kids need. I mean, they, 
provide that support uh, to yeah. students. We have a room, yeah, we have a room here that's just stopped uh, with supplies, just basic supplies, food, clothing, toiletries. Um, I think the homeless population that we have right in our school, they're classified as homeless. Something a little over, uh, I want to say 23%, 24 mm -hmm. of our students qualify as homeless. Yeah, yeah, all right. I, I was thinking about, um, you know, the piece you were talking about a little earlier around shaping school culture and how you have teachers who often get placed there, you know, because they haven't done well in other places. And I was thinking about, uh, you know, often in a lot of these schools that is the case and what a challenge that is to create a culture of care and compassion in that. Did you have any thoughts about you know, apart from people leaving who just don't fit that model, what else do you think has actually really made a difference in that school culture? Yeah, you bet. Um, I think about this a lot. And uh, I think that there's a certain percentage of teachers that, um, that the, best, the best thing you're hoping for is just doing no harm. You know, they, they, because I think that there's a certain piece of building relationships with kissing chance and young people that is a piece of either you've got it or you don't. Like there's a piece that either you enjoy kids that are pissed off and depressed, you know, or you just, or just that's maybe not your group of humans that you connect well with. You can, for whatever reason, relate well to. So, I, and I think that that's true for a certain percentage of teachers. But I think that those teachers, um, and we have some of those teachers here at our school. Um, yet those teachers understand the science behind it, and, uh, and I'll get it. And, and I think their value system has shifted. They're just not the type of people that build relationships deeply with that population. However, they they also do no harm in the classroom. They're great teachers. They're great educators. They provide support for the kids. They understand that when a kid is stressed out, they need to go to the escalation room and chill out for a little bit. They don't fight that. They don't think that's a bad kid. They, they have all the things in place that need to be there. They're just not people that connect deeply with that population. So, And I think that's going to be true in every school system. You know, our school has moved out all the teachers that are on board with this philosophy of education. Um, but as far as the fine-tuning of that, it comes down to a value system change. It comes down to, um, you know, like, and that's, people People come to our school frequently looking for a, uh, a recipe book on how to do this. They're looking for an instruction manual. They're looking for another reading strategy on how to do this. And, uh, you know, and I think that there is a, probably an instruction booklet out there for how to implement this. I think that that possibly exists. The weird part about how we got where we are it was that it happened so organically that we've got really no instructions to give people. It's not like we did this, this, and this, and if you do this, this, and this, you can come to that spot too. Because what when you shift the value, the core value system of, of the staff in your school, then whatever the situation arises, whether it's a disciplinary situation, whether it's a student coming in that's in need for something, whether it's a classroom management situation, whether it's all the things that an administrator wants to give instruction to a group of teachers on how they're going to respond to that moment, or if it's just where a school district superintendent and school board want to give instruction to superintendents about how they want them to handle discipline. If your value system is all in a certain lineup, you're just going to respond to that situation in the correct way. If you believe, if your passion is, I want to take care of this kid first and foremost before I do anything else, my concern is, what is going on with this kid and how can I help this kid feel better, then it doesn't matter what the situation arises. You're going to handle that correctly. If you have a staff that doesn't take it personally and feel like they're Sherlock Holmes of, of behavior, then when behavior happens in the classroom, they're automatically going to not take that personally. To a certain extent, we're human and it's frustrating. That doesn't change. 
but they're going to respond to it in a way based on just this value system that is set inside their soul. Yeah. Like, uh, we, don't, you know, we don't have a turnover of teachers here. I've been here 10 years. All the teachers are the same except for one that was for family reasons. They left town. We're, you know, we're the same core group that started here. We've added some new ones in, but no one's left. Um, so I don't know how to, you know, and I wish I knew a better way of being in other schools. Say, how do I implement this at my school? Well, the answer is you've got to change the values of your, your staff to be in alignment to loving kids unconditionally. Well, yeah, write that book. You know, like that's a that's a tough manual uh, to write for people and how to change people's insights. Yeah, yeah. I, I was uh, thinking about um, what you were saying about, you know, responding to superintendents and, you know, instructions that come from above. How, how, how have you been able to advocate for this sort of trauma-informed kind of way of working? You know, you have people from the outside who look at this stuff and think it's just another fad. You know, they, you know, they measure you according to the academics, not necessarily about how, you know, socially, emotionally the kids are. How have you guys been able to advocate and measure for things and um, communicate to people how well you're doing um, you know that's that was that has been uh, our school district was really slow to come around uh, that's yeah. one of the benefits of the paper tigers coming out because uh, you know it was always like that's nice Lincoln you guys are adorable you keep doing that thing over there you guys are doing this aces thing you're doing this trauma-informed thing and uh, you know they weren't able to separate the fact that Every school has the thing that they do, and the thing we do here is uh, try to put back together and heal broken children. That is our thing. That's what we do. Um, and the traditional at high school is their thing is getting kids college bound to the world's greatest colleges. That's their thing that they do. And they work. They had a really hard time separating out that that the way you view kids through a trauma informed lens, the way you love kids unconditionally. That's not a thing. That's not a thing you do. That's how you interact with young people. If you're teaching an AP biology class, you still love kids unconditionally. You still scan the room and look for that kid that's hurting. It's not actually being able to be in your class to the level that they could be because of that behavior you're seeing. It might be super subtle. You're having those conversations. Like, that piece doesn't change no matter what the thing is that you do. And our district had a really hard time understanding that. Um, they were forced to understand that because all of a sudden this movie broke and now all of a sudden schools from all over the country were, were calling up and saying, whoa, school district, what are you doing over there? That's so great. We want to have that thing you're doing. And finally the district was like, well, maybe we should figure out what they're doing because it seems like everyone else in the country is really interested in it. And I would say that there was almost a year and a half, almost two years of time where, where the rest of the country better understood what our school was doing than our own school district did because they were actually wanting it more than our own district was. Um, and so finally, you know, through some personnel changes on our school board, through a new superintendent, um, it's dramatically changed. And now it's become one of the focal points of our entire district. But there was a lag time of almost two years that our own school district didn't, didn't understand what we were doing. Yeah. That's that's fascinating to just hear how the documentary actually helped with advocating for the way you guys work. And it really makes me think about, you know, how important it is to actually showcase people who are doing great work just to help others yes. understand. Yeah. yeah um, there is some there is some hangups that a lot of people have, uh, that that are you know, it's like across the board, you know, there are going to be you know, you sit down with a group of people and you force them to listen to this podcast, then uh the, uh, or if you force them to watch Paper Tigers, as you know, Jeannie and I will frequently uh, get called to go to school districts and speak to the, the you know, teachers in the school district. And uh, you know, sometimes we end up in some real conservative school districts. 
and we had one where it was clear that if, if, the student, if the teachers we were talking to had chosen between going to the dentist for a root canal and listening to what we had to say about, uh, about traumatized kids, they probably would have chosen the root canal. And, uh, and, and the, the common theme that we get is we, uh, we're just enabling poor student behavior, right? Uh, we're coddling them too much and we're enabling poor student behavior. The real world isn't going to say, uh, you know, um, oh, I'm sorry, you have a bad day. Um, you know, they, they have a really hard time um, realizing that there's there's no way that I can make my classroom harder than their real life, right? Like, uh, what they've been lacking in life is not is not tougher consequences. They, their tough consequences are way more than any kid should ever have to deal with. What they've been lacking in life is somebody to care and nurture for them. And, uh, yeah, you know, I can understand why that feels, you know, like you want to, you want to think that if a student touches a stove and it burns them, they're not going to touch that stove again. But that's not the brains we're working with, right? Like the brains we're working with are going to fire off and make that kid keep touching the stove, even though they don't want to touch the stove. They're going to keep touching that hot stove. So our job is to try to stop that behavior, stop that brain from getting them to keep touching a hot stove, even though they know the stove's hot, even though they don't want to touch it. They're going to keep touching that stove. You're not going to punish them any more than that stove is going to be. So that's that we always get. Um, and, uh, and they also get, get caught up in what looks like lack of boundaries for us. I realize this was really complicated. Um, you know, the, um, the movie shows us texting students. Uh, the movie shows us saying I love you to students. And, uh, you know, on, on one hand, yes, you know, that is something that this is an educational thing that staff need to have, right? Like, you don't say, student, I love you. You know, like that's creepy. That's weird. That's going to freak anyone out, right? But there's ways that you can say that, that, that you can do with intent that are safe, right? You can uh, you can add the word man, I love you man. You add that last little tag to the end of it and all of a sudden it doesn't feel weird. I love you guys, say it to a group of kids. Um, wait till they're on their way out the door and then I'll call out their name, you know, like, hey, Jose, I love you man. You know, and, and that doesn't feel, that feels good for every kid. No kid's gonna hate that. Um, yes, weird, full, lingering frontal hugs, those are gross and weird, right? But the one on side hug, that you let them know ahead of time, you're like, side hug coming, and you give them that big side hug. Like, that feels good for most kids, and you learn the kids that that, that, that crosses a boundary for them. You can, you can feel that ahead of time with some practice and some training, and that becomes safe. Um, you know, the, um, the, the, the first grader and the teacher in the first grade have a relationship that is a human, a mom to a child, and it's real, and it's core. Something happens to junior high when you move to high school, that it becomes the professional as a teacher professional and a student as the professional student and the relationship becomes sterile and professional. Mm -hmm. Somehow we have to figure out how do we step across that boundary of professionalism to where oftentimes, like I just had this yesterday, uh, a kid was just being a squirrel in class and they were making my life tough. So I pulled out the hallway and I'm like, man, this isn't me as the teacher talking to you right now. Like This is me, Eric, talking to you. Like, I, as a human, have feelings up here, man. Like, you are making my life hard. You're making it hard for me to love you right now as much as I want to love you. Like, you're making that difficult. Like, this isn't the way two humans that want to get to know each other and enjoy each other's company. You know, we're the first two, two weeks of school here. Like, this isn't how they interact. This isn't how you start a good relationship. My goal is to have a great relationship as me, the human, with you, the human. And, and uh, so, yes, you have boundaries. My role isn't their buddy. I'm not playing an Xbox with them. I don't want them to like me. That's not my goal. I'm not trying to be their friend. That is weird. I agree. But at the same time, I'm not just a professional. And I, I fill a very unique role. I'm not a therapist. A therapist has uh, a much more clinical. There's almost a more distant role that a therapist has with a client than the role I have with these kids. 
because my role is part parent, it's part uncle, um, it's part professional teacher, it is part therapist, it is this very like dynamic role, all of those things that requires me to make a relationship with that kid as me as the most human person I can be with them as the most human they can be. We'll still maintain all those professional boundaries, but it has to be real. I can't be a automaton in front of the classroom. Otherwise, they could just do Khan Academy online learning and get everything they needed. Yeah, and and you know, it makes me think all learning happens in good relationships, really, isn't it? And ultimately, an investment in that is an investment in them being able to learn something, um, even if even if it means learning about relationships and treating people well. Yeah, uh, so there's a real focus on social emotional learning and development there, Eric. Could you speak to that a bit? How you kind of modify your curriculum, or how you kind of talk to the kids about? Uh, teach them about those things? Yeah, you know, there's some really, um, each each subject has their own ability to integrate that in, I think. Um, I see some really cool stuff with our English teachers. Um, they use a program called Nearpod, which allows them to, to uh, the kids have Chromebooks in the classroom, they walk in the classroom. Jeannie, actually one of the teachers in the movie, um, she will fire off an entry task that has them write using whatever the grammatical thing she's learning, whatever the English thing she's learning is. She'll fire that out as the way she wants them to respond, but what they're responding about is what went on in their night before. Is that what you're looking for? Yeah, 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 absolutely. I just wanted to get the name of that program you just said before. It's called Nearpod. Nearpod. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's, it's great. It's browser-based, so if any platform that works on it, you can pull up on their smartphone if they wanted to. She throws a code up on the wall, they punch it in, it pulls them into the classroom. She can fire PowerPoints at them, presentations at them. But the other thing that she can do is she can see what they're writing in real time. So she can click through each of the students and see what they're writing. So she asks them about their night or how they're doing that morning, or she gives them some sort of question that allows her to build relationships, check in on their social emotional well-being, and she can respond to them in that program. So they're getting feedback in real time from her in the class. She's getting a quick check-in. Uh, when she chooses, uh, when she chooses literature that they're that they're learning, there's intent behind it as it has something to do with. Um, um, helping them gain a skill in the, the trauma-informed uh, arena. In my class in science, you know, um, you know I talked to the kids about my, my um, we were challenged by the superintendent to the why, is why are we educators, why are we here this year? And so I let the kids know, you know, my why is, one of my whys is that I want to give them all the opportunities they can in life, and that uh, this may come as a surprise to them, but my science classroom actually falls last on my priority list of what they need have all the options they can in life. And I list off what some of those other ones are. But then I challenge them and I say, what is your why that you're here as a student? If you're just here because if you go on truancy, if you miss too much school, they're going to put you in jail, then you're only going to try hard enough to be here so that it gets straight at You get straight at so not go to jail for not being in school. So you can be, and that's the level you're going to try. If you just want a high school diploma instead of a GED, you're going to get straight D's, right? But then I say, you know, and then there's college now and it keeps ramping up. But what if your why is that you wanted to be as great as you could be in life? Well, what if that meant that this academic stuff wasn't what you needed next? Maybe that meant that when we're doing it in a lab and it's got 40 different steps and you get halfway through and you get overwhelmed and you melt down just because you get frustrated and confused and that's how your brain reacts. Well, now we're talking. Now, there's a why. There's a conversation I want to have. There's a skill that we should work on in that moment because that's the same why I have. Because let's figure that out. Let's make you great in life. That becomes a why to be here that's way beyond academics. Now that's exciting. That's really good stuff. Like, that makes me super excited to be here and teach way beyond the science curriculum that I can, that I can do. 
Yeah. Now that sounds really interesting how you can kind of weave in the social emotional stuff to the academics. There's so right. much scope for that, isn't there? Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. I'll just be a bit provocative. You know, for some people listening to that, they'd think, oh, look, that sounds a lot like, you know, therapy and mental health. And, and what about the kids who want to learn just the lesson? You know, what about them? Aren't you depriving them of that? Oh, um, and often we talk about being able to, you know, that some of this stuff helps all the kids and, and, and that it's beneficial to all of them. Is that how you think about it? What would you say to these people who say, you know, you're not doing enough of the kind of academics? Right. Um, so every kid needs to be met where they're at, right? And, uh, yeah. Like we said earlier, you know, there's kids that, that need to be in an AP science class that are getting all their social emotional needs met at home. And, and that base need is already being met for those students. And absolutely, the science class that that kid needs to be in is not one where the focus is the kid that melts down halfway through a set of instructions and you're talking about a, a social-emotional skill set so they can make it through that entire instruction process. Mm. That's not the science class that student needs to be in. Like, that's yeah. the wrong thing. You know, like, you know, um, it, this is a disability. Like, this is a brain disability. And I don't understand why it's so hard for us to look at that. You don't look at, at a kid with dyslexia and then just punish them because they can't read as well as everyone else. Like we're able to recognize, oh, the brain has got something going on that makes us a challenge. This is no different than that, right? We, we make accommodations for, for all the other things that go on in a kid's life that make learning a challenge for them. But for some reason, we have a really hard time looking at this as something some accommodations to get the kids, kids the skill sets that they need to go on. So you're right. So what does this look like then in a large traditional ed high school? If that large traditional ed high school was doing this correctly, we wouldn't be here as a school because mm. any school can have the idea we're not letting any kid get past us. But if that's the case, they're going to have to let go of this idea that I'm going to have an academic and a behavioral standard that's a bar that every single kid in my school is going to live up to and meet, or they're going to have to move on. We're going to have to accept that we're going to need to find that next target that they need uh, behaviorally, like academically and behaviorally challenging them. That's still rigor. We're still going to push them to be better, but it has to be at a different place for different kids within one school. Right? Mm. So so you still you're, so a big school is still gonna to need to provide this space in that school for these kids because this is where these kids are at, as well as they provide that AP class for those kids because that's where those kids are at. Yeah, that's great. That's really good. I wanted to ask you, I read about the kind of red, yellow, green framework to kind of think about where kids are at. I wasn't, uh, could you speak to that, Eric, about how that gets used um, with discipline? Yeah, you know, it's um, you know that that gets used um, across the board. Um, you know, the gym really liked the, the target picture of red, yellow, green. Um, but however, a teacher uses that model or that concept, it's just strictly that you know when a brain is too escalated, when it's too elevated, when the, the, the limbic system shuts down and prevents the cortex from processing, then nothing positive is going to happen out of that moment until you bring that brain down into a de-escalated point, right? Where it's yeah. in the yellow, which is where they're engaged. Yeah. So I was just going to get you to explain that. So red is when they've completely... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. yeah. yeah. Sure, sure, sure. So, so green would be a kid that comes in here. Uh, I would even say that's too stone. Uh, green would be a kid that comes in here without a sleep. Green would be a kid that is... Is, is just completely disengaged from the process at that point. They're, they're so de-escalated, they're relaxed. That's a negative side of it. Maybe it's a kid, uh, you know, a kid could meditate and do yoga and put themselves into that green state of relaxation where they're just at peace, their mind is calm, 
You know, I mean, there's that, so green doesn't necessarily say negative, it can be either one of those, but it is a disengaged brain from the active learning process. It is, it is in the green, it's in the calm, it's just a calm state. Um, then as a, as a teacher, the ideal place that I would like them to be in is in the yellow state, where their brain is ramped up, they're engaged, they're processing, they're thinking, they're challenging themselves. Um, you know, I, I have, uh, they had to do presentations yesterday, they're gonna do presentations in my class today. I expect us to be right on that red-yellow red, border where they're, they're, they're nervous, they're, they're, they're hyper-engaged, they're, they're aroused, but yet they're still able to process and think and be in that space, right? Well, if that pushes too far, which it will for some of my students today, just the act of getting up front and speaking will push them into that red, and I'm gonna to have to recognize that and provide them a, a, an opportunity to de-escalate back down to the yellow, or maybe they're not even gonna be able to do it, and we'll do it, we'll do it privately on the side. But once the brain escalates too high and you get into the red, it means that the escalation of the brain is such that the, the limbic system is shutting down that, that reason on the top. So that's how that it's just sort of an easy way of the kids, the kids we teach about that scale. So the kids can respond back to us and say, hey. I'm here right now. Like they can at least point to red. Even if they can't speak, they can point to red and go. And then you're like, I got you, man. Like no sweat. Like I get it. I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not even try to have this conversation right now. You let's let go home. In fact, just either go upstairs and hang out with CJ or go home. Uh, we'll talk to you tomorrow. Uh, once once you once you got yourself put back together again, let's have that conversation. We can have a conversation. Yeah, that's awesome. Such a just a practical and useful tool. Um, yeah. So, what is your hope for the school, Eric? Or what do you think the challenges are for the future uh, moving forward? You bet. That's actually my biggest. Like, I, that's my biggest frustration. Uh, actually, um, we have now uh, probably after seven years in, six years into this, um, we have maximized the gains we had on building relationships with kids. We have maximized the gains we had by having educators with their skill set. Um, having these amazing relationships, um, seeing the benefits of academics in the moment. Um, a study was done here a couple of years ago where they looked at uh, the comparison of kids at our school with low ACE counts and kids at our school with high ACE counts and uh, tracked them over time. They found that within a very short period of time, like a month, month and a half or so, the performance of kids with high ACE and the performance of kids with low ACE in the school setting was almost, there was no undistinguishable. They were, they were about even. Um, which is great. Mm. The problem is it isn't giving them, we're not giving them enough of the skills they need. We're not able to do enough of the reparative work that we need to be doing, the mental health work we need to be doing for the kids to be able to leave here, leave the support system that we have in place immediately and to go out on their own and be able to be successful. We're falling grossly short on that and it's incredibly frustrating. The problem then becomes when I look nationwide in the United States, there's not a single public school anywhere that's trying to make a marriage uh, of, of mental health and education together in the same place. So I started Googling the world in uh, Australia. I'm proud to say for you guys, is the one model that I've uh, been able to find anywhere, the very student model, uh, where they're actually doing that. And uh, much to my frustration, I've also discovered that there's actually physically not a location on planet Earth farther away from our school than Melbourne. So, um, you know, both physically and financially, that knowledge base is out of our reach, uh, which is which is real, real frustrating, given, uh, given that's the next step that I feel that we, we have as a school, that we feel as teachers that we have as a school. Uh, a brilliant clinician needs to come in here. We've, we've got relationships. Our teachers have 
the, the, the relationships, and we are poised to implement brilliant intervention. Like we're ready. Like we are making the stages set. We are chopping a bit to be given uh, the tools to, to make the change that we need, and we don't have uh, the system, the program, the person to come in here and give us the knowledge of what we need to make that happen, and it's incredibly frustrating. Yeah, and and that's kind of what we're trying to do with our program as well. Is I'm I'm a clinical psychologist, and Kay's got, you know, over 20, 25 years of teaching experience, and trying to find a way to kind of put that into practice, really. And um, and just hearing you speak, this you're the reason, you know, you guys working there with the kids, you're the reason why we keep going and keep trying to promote the program because um, it's really inspiring to hear the work you're doing. For people listening who, who are struggling a bit, <laughs> perhaps having a bit of a rough day with some of the students, um, did you have any messages for them, Eric, about being able to keep going? Um, yeah, I, I, uh, I personally prefer a nice Syrah at the end of the day. I can find <laughs> that. That's incredibly helpful. Um, you know, um, um, I lean on my peers immensely. Having a, a, a support system of teachers that uh, believe like I do, that can laugh with me, uh, that can laugh at the kids, and I know that it doesn't come from a mean place—a yeah. um, place that I can that I can honestly complain about about students at times, um, um, knowing that they're not going to think or, or feel like I don't love that child anymore. But sometimes I just got to be able to get that out there in a, in a healthy way. Um, the knowledge, I suppose, just the knowledge that um, I guess I, I guess for me it was helpful because I myself was a really brutal student when I was in school. And for me to look back and remember, I actually had no negative feelings towards my teachers. To me, it was almost a game inside my head mm -hmm. um, that my side of that interaction with that unsavory behavior is not the same experience that they're having. That although I may be really frustrated with this kid, it doesn't mean that that kid is really frustrated with me. Um, that kid has their own experience that doesn't even involve me. You know, um, for me, I have a picture on the on the back of my wall by the clock. It's a picture of my parents and my sister, and her family, and my family walking barefoot on a beach on the coast. Uh, it's my happy place. It's the place that I'm the most centered. It's a place that I can look at that picture and I remember exactly what it feels like to be standing in that spot. And and whenever that that experience in school gets to where I feel myself getting sucked into that moment where. Uh, I'm feeling emotionally reactive to that kid in that moment. I can I can try to logic my way out of it by remembering, oh, that's right. This has nothing to do with me. Like this kid's giving me the best version of them they've got right now, and this is what it looks like. And I'm just along for this ride. And I can almost check out a little bit. I like check in with that picture and remember what that spot feels like, and, and bring that back into my body and say, okay, this is what I'm going to try to feel like in this moment. I'm going to let this kid behave how they're going to behave. I'm going to Get them hooked up with what they need. There's going to be a consequence for this behavior because they need that in order to feel safe. That's probably going to escalate potentially in the situation. When I tell them they're going to have to leave class, that's okay. You know, like, it's going to end up okay. This relationship is not being ruined in this moment. Uh, we're going to revisit it tomorrow. Um, and, and for me, that's my, like, that's my go-to moment uh, that works for me. But I think everyone has to come, come up with what does it take for them to separate their emotional response from that interaction uh, and allow them to choose the way they feel in that moment, realizing that that kid is uh, is not having the same experience that they are. So they might as well choose their own experience. That is 
really great advice. Such practical self-care advice. I think I'm going to remember that tip about having a little picture. <laughs> I think that's really <laughs> Eric, thank you so much for taking time out to speak with us. Um, was there any um, last sort of resources or websites that you wanted to direct our listeners to before we finish? You know, um, I'm not sure what there is. I know that um, the, the Palix Foundation in Canada, in Alberta, Canada, uh, Palix or Palix, is P-A-L-I-X. Uh, they're doing the uh, Alberta Family Wellness Initiative, I believe is what it's called. Um, and they're in uh, conjunction with Harvard University, and at least in North America, they are doing the most extensive work with implementing uh, trauma-informed practices surrounding cases. On they're doing it on a, an entire province level, mm. and uh, it's the best work that I've seen in North America as far as a resource for. They've got this uh, Harvard, the Harvard papers are called. They're thirteen papers uh, that are intentionally written in language that anyone can understand. Uh, done with the purpose of creating a unified language across the entire province, whether your primary care providers or educators and law enforcement, everybody's speaking the same language, um, all surrounding cases. So that's a, I would, I would encourage people to look them up and, uh, and see what they're doing because it's really great work. That's excellent. Thank you so much. And if people wanted to get in touch with you, was there mm -hmm. some way they can do that? Yeah, you bet. Um, they can contact uh, the school uh, or Marcy, uh, our principal, would be a great contact as well. And her email address would be mknauft at wwps.org. Marcy Knopf, mknauft at mobilepublicschools.org. That's great. Yvonne to the office, please. Yvonne to the office, please. <laughs> I'm going to keep that one in. Uh, we'll, <laughs> uh, we'll put all those details on our show notes. I will have to let you go, Eric. Thank you so much for your time. Um, and for conversation. Hopefully we can keep in touch. Absolutely. Yeah, sounds good. That was our interview with Eric Gordon from the Lincoln High School in Walla Walla, Washington. Thank you to Eric for volunteering to share his wisdom and experience. To access the resources and websites discussed in the interview, check out the show notes by visiting www.tipbs.com. If you're enjoying listening to our podcast, please rate and review it on iTunes. Your ratings make all the difference. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>